Hello and welcome back to Promo Noise. I'm your host, Alex Morin, and this is, of course, part two of the Stan Gallen Mentor Series interview. I hope you loved part one as much as I did. Now, before I get started on part two, I want to thank Stan Gallen for being as gracious as he was in doing this interview with me. I kind of had a sneaking suspicion that when I asked him to do the interview, he'd say, yeah, of course I'll do the interview. But often what happens as an interviewer is when you send someone questions, they'll start to take a look at them and they'll say, no, not that one. Oh, I don't really want to talk about that subject. That's off, off limits. And Stan did the exact opposite. He said, Alex, doesn't matter what you ask me, I will answer and I'll answer you honestly. And so what you're going to see in part two here is really Stan's humanity shine. You're going to see what makes Debco and what has made Debco such a unique and special company as his legacy and his energy continue to shine through. Hey, I'm not teasing any more of this episode. I'm going to roll it right now. So I hope you enjoy the rest of part two. Take care and enjoy. You had a knack, Stan, for being able to de-escalate problems, um, be they an order that was misprinted, an order that was late, uh, or just a customer who, uh, you know, was was upset about something. What was the secret to that? How how do you? What's the skill you bring to that that allows you to problem resolve like like no one I've ever seen? And I I I learned all my lessons about problem resolving uh, from you. Um. You know, when you're you're married, uh, you can have an argument and you can say things, um, but you love the other part, the other party, and they'll forgive you, and they might actually forget. Mm-hmm. And in business, it's completely different. Mm. And the goal that I found is never be emotional, never give an emotional response. Um, because you can't take it back. Right. You know, countless times I would be on the road and the nature of a gallon on the go call was everything but product. Uh, And distributors would say a story to me about in the heat of a moment, a particular supplier said, your customer's an idiot. The goods are fine. And they'll recant that story as if it happened an hour ago. And I got so used to it that I would counter with, so did that happen 10 or 15 years ago? And they would say it was 10. (laughs) And and I never bought from that supplier again. And I felt that if you were never emotional, if you think long-term on every problem that you were facing with, um, I used to, just coming to me now, I used to use this analogy with staff. I I would pretend Mm -hmm. Uh, we're going through the artwork file or the, or the, the invoicing file. And they say to me, oh, I'm looking at, uh, we'll call it the Quinn company, but they used to be a big customer. And I see after 1996, there's no more invoices. And I say, oh yeah, I remember that. We had a problem with an art charge, and I told the guy off. And as a result, he never bought from me again. Oh, yeah? Well, it looks like they were doing like $40,000 a year, um, and they stopped. Uh, How much was that art charge for? It's $45. We're in the year 1999. You just have lost 
five years of $40,000 oh, over what? I'm sorry, what, what did you say? 45 bucks? So that $200,000 worth of sales was lost because you made a point over a $45 art charge? Would you like to do that over again? <laughs> I never let it happen where we had to do it over again. So never be emotional. Yep. Think long-term. And sometimes you were faced with really, really difficult situations. And what I believed in, I would say sometimes to the account managers, I want to go home and sleep on this. This is big. I don't want to give you an answer now. I want you to explain to me everything so that, and I would always paraphrase back. Because if you paraphrase back, it means you understood the problem completely. Mm-hmm. I would go home and sleep on it. And I found that when I'd wake up in the morning, my mind had been thinking about the problem when I slept. I opened my eyes and I had the answer and I had conviction that the answer was correct. And I would always go back to the account manager and say, this is my feeling. Now, you've explained to me the problem. This is what I want to go to market with. This is what I want you to go back with. Do you agree? Mm-hmm. And if they said to me, oh, no, I don't, I said, then maybe I didn't understand this because this is my area. This is, I've really given this uh, like a lot of time. If you disagree with what I'm telling you to go back to the distributor with, the distributor, if your heart's not in what I'm telling you to do, yep. the distributor is going to know that you're not supportive of what I'm coming up with. So I want you to make sure. And I don't want you to BS me. Do you agree with this solution? Mm-hmm. And if they said yes, they went back to market and they had conviction in their answer and we would get it solved. I believed <clears throat> it was far better for a distributor not to be able to reach me by phone because there can be emotion in my voice when they, you know, I'm the we'll call it the count manager was the pawn and we'll call me the bishop. I'm not using Mm -hmm. king. So they were a blocker from a distributor being able to reach me and forcing me into a decision that that I didn't agree with. If you wrote a non-emotional, carefully crafted, and you were a specialist in this, Mm -hmm. uh, email to correspond to the client about the total issue, how you saw it, um, and you spelled everything out in a rational way and asked for the distributor to come back and explain, if I have this series of events correct, what exactly did we do wrong? Because I'd like to fix our operation. And, and in order to solve your problem, I want to make sure it doesn't happen again. What did we do wrong so that we can fix it and then we'll work towards solving the problem? There was also an understanding. There was this imaginary line where a problem went from, I want to maintain our profit. It transcended into a goodwill enhancement issue. Yes. They seamlessly went from, you better stop trying to make money because at this point it's gotten so bad, you're going to lose my business. I seem to have an ability to understand when one had crossed over the line mm-hmm. from profit to goodwill. And I, I seem to be able to understand 
And I never saw it as my money. If the client was right, they were right. Yep. If we were wrong, we were wrong. Mm-hmm. And I didn't stand behind us solely because, hey, capitalism says uh, we're in to make money. If I believe they were right, I immediately acquiesced. And through everything I could have that I had at my disposal to keep the goodwill fluid in that cup from getting to the bottom. Because if it got to the bottom, you would lose the relationship uh, and they would go to some somebody else. So having empowering your account managers um, to be order taker, problem resolve, uh, letting them do the whole gamut and helping them craft particular writings, which I may have done the entire writing, but I, I would sign their name to it and they would send it on behalf of themselves, maybe CCing me so the distributor knew that I was already in the loop. So they never needed to call me. We used a, it was like psychological warfare hmm. against the distributor. Um, and reaching me was a last line of defense, which I managed through series of subterfuge uh, to keep it all within the account manager, Bailey Wick. And it was really a marketing tool. Problem solving uh, and big issues was a tremendous marketing tool to enhance relationships with clients and enhance relationships with the account managers in my department. A fabulous, a fabulous lesson for everybody who's listening right now. Do you remember, Stan, that at one point we used to invent logos and put them on uh, products in our catalogs? <laughs> and at one point there, I, I, if I recall correctly, there was a logo that said, call Stan or something like that. He's never in or, or some, something to that effect. Well, the, the goal of never being in <laughs> was, you know, I was sometimes too prominent. And people felt the only way that I can get the right answer is to call Stan. So what I needed to do was make myself hard to reach so that they had to go to their account manager and they realized, hey, the account manager can solve this. I don't need him. Mm -hmm. So it was all a psychological ploy to push people away from me so that I could use a support, a support, I don't want to call it support staff, but I guess that's what it is, where I could use the account managers and I could empower them to do the job. But a distributor had to believe that they had the tools of empowerment and the skills and the knowledge uh, in order to uh, avoid calling me direct. But yes, uh, I remember <laughs> our, one of our receptionists just immediately, oh, he's not in. And they would say, do you not even need to check? <laughs> I mean, she didn't even hide the fact. It was almost like it was part of the greeting. I think one time I heard her say it while I was sitting on the edge of her desk. <laughs> but it was all part. You know what? I, I knew it was working when the incredible Sandy McCabe yep. from McCabe Promotional mm-hmm. This was back in the 90s. She would phone me for everything. I mean, I wouldn't say she didn't trust anyone, but Debco was Stan. And um, by using this technique, you could never say to her, listen, I'm too busy for you. You want to speak to Cindy? You didn't do that. So by making myself unavailable and people weaned off me, 
and and you made sure that they had talented, skilled account managers. She finally said, you know what? I don't need you anymore. I can reach Patricia. And it was like, bang, I won. It worked. <laughs> Beautiful. And, uh, that was a logo. <laughs> I can almost imagine Dory picking up the phone and saying, welcome to Debco. And Stan's not in today. Yeah, pretty much. No tact, just the delivery. That line uh, where you understood the difference between problem resolve and now it's an issue of goodwill really is a, it becomes a moment of giving when you cross that line and you get into goodwill. Now, now it's about the philosophy of giving, right? So even if you you, you believe that you know you you might be in the right here, but I, I'm going to give back in in the interest of preserving this relationship, in the interest of just moving forward. Because seriously, we're talking about a cooler bag here. We're talking about an order of cooler bags. That's it. <laughs> and speaking of cooler bags, you once said to me, I think I was upset about something, and and you said, whoa, 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 Alex, like uh, you, you you call this an urgent order? Uh, it's only urgent if people are using our cooler bags to transplant and uh, to 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 transport organs. And yes. at, at that moment, I was like, yeah, yeah, you know what? You're you're right. It's just a darn cooler bag. It's just I a remember, tote bag. I remember, I remember the, the most basic, most, I mean, you use the word, this is an urgent quote on wrist fanny packs. I mean, like, <laughs> right. you know, how can you use the word urgent and wrist fanny pack in the same sentence. I mean, it's just <laughs> How can you use a wrist fanny pack, period? Anyways, we won't go into the worst of Debco's products. There are a few of them, uh, the non-woven vest being my favorite. Um, so you get to that line of goodwill versus problem resolve, and you get into the, the, the goodwill portion of it, and now you're giving. Giving's always been a huge philosophy of yours, Stan. I, I witnessed you load your car up on several, several occasions and go donate bags to uh, the Yellow Brick Foundation, all kinds of different hospitals. Uh, has that always been a big part of who you were, Stan, giving uh, this, this philosophy of helping out? Well, they were marketing tools. I mean, as I said to you, we tried to grab in a commodity-driven environment, you tried to find anything possible that would differentiate you, that would make you memorable, that would cause people to think about you and your firm at the time they wanted to buy a bag, drinkware, or umbrella product. Um, donations, uh, samples, sponsorships were a different form of marketing tool that enhanced my ability to have a variety of different tools uh, that I could avail of depending on what was needed. But again, the goal was to be memorable mm. in every single aspect. If you didn't make, if you weren't memorable, everything you did had to be memorable. Um, I, I know I'm going to digress. Even a quote, a quote is the most generic, basic, boring thing that everyone does, but you can even market a quote. And how do you market a quote? Send it within four minutes of receiving it. <laughs> and you're probably not getting the order anyhow because there probably isn't an order, but you got, you were memorable because you did it in four minutes. So everything I did was an attempt to be memorable. And the hope was through the tools that you did that we'll call it water cooler talk that in a distributor, in a distributorship 
one salesperson would tell another salesperson who would tell another, it was very incestuous, who would tell a buddy at another organization something positive about what Debco did. Mm-hmm. And I would, that that's really what it was about. Uh, not to make it callous. I mean, we were donating it and I wanted to always be generous. But I mean, I would seek out gatekeepers. I mean, a gatekeeper to me is a person that will that is really willing to talk, will go into a room full of people. And by the time they leave, they will have told every single person, I love Debco or I hate Debco or I didn't like them. They were somebody who you wanted on your side. Mm-hmm. And anything that we could do, these were tools. I mean, they were done on, with from a good place. Yeah. But anything, word of mouth advertising, as long as it was positive, anything I could come up with that differentiate us as being a good guy, as being a supplier that I want to be associated with, that's all I, I did every single day I was at Debco. Yes, I, I, and I, I witnessed that. Uh, let me let me kind of rephrase the question then and, and position it from the standpoint of caring, because we talked a couple of seconds ago about those fake uh, catalog images we used to make. And when I made mine, I, I wrote, Alex, I care that that's something that 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 was that was dear to me. And, and we put that in the catalog. And and I, I don't think it's any surprise that that the great Sergio Munoz actually writes that in his signatures. He's, he's got that under his signature, Sergio Munoz business title. And then it says, I care. And I always found that interesting that, that he did that, but really I, I, I got that from you. I, I just saw the level of care. You cared about friends. You cared about customers. You cared about supplier relations. You cared about all those things that, that, that seems to be a philosophy of yours, right? This idea of caring. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and the genesis of that was in, I had an epiphany. I'm placed I'm running um, a retail branch for the Scotia Bank. I mentioned at um, Spadina and Dundas, Chinatown, retail branch, uh, purely retail branch. I get promoted to head office, uh, Bank of Nova Scotia, 19th floor, in excess of 100 women uh, in the processing department. I don't know a thing. Like, you, you can't imagine how little I knew. And because the, the head office level was completely different from being in the branch level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm being asked to sign my G90, uh, you know, which was my signing authority and transferring millions of dollars between accounts. I didn't even know what I was doing. <laughs> and I realized then that if the staff liked me, if they saw me as hardworking, caring, genuine, positively reinforcing their work, polite, respectful, that I had a better chance of not being nailed due to my uh, lack of knowledge. I was really, um, I was in a very, very tenuous position, that job. And I was reliant, completely reliant on people. And the only tool, the only tool I could think of was caring and all of the things that, that you that you want to motivate a staff member to want to do the very best for you solely because he's a good guy and he seems to be working hard and we'd like to make him look good. And I think I learned it from there 
the power of of um, encouraging a staff member to do their very best on your behalf because you're likable. And that's where I learned it. It was Scotiabank, 1986, 1985, 1986. And I just carried it on the rest of my career. So that would be G90 transferring millions of dollars. That should give yes. everybody a great deal of faith in the Canadian banking system, shouldn't it? <laughs> I was doing. But you, you, they needed an authorizing signature. Actually, for years, I, I used to sign G90 at Demco on things. But <laughs> just for anyway, fun. Just for fun. I, um, I, as you know, I've got the Mentor Series blogs that I write. Um, and I recently described you in one of the blogs as an empath. And it's probably, you know, as, as, as my levels of awareness grow, as I become older and more experienced, and I understand truly what empaths are. I've always known what empathy is, but I, I understand what an empath is. Did I get that right, Stan? Are you an empath? And if you are, and I, I, don't, I don't want to be leading the witness here, d- does that ever become emotionally draining? You know, can you feel it so much that it's, oh my gosh, like I go to bed and it's, I, I, I just crash immediately because I, I've been feeling these emotions all day long well it's a gift and a curse um i really did believe that i could feel what a distributor or staff member was feeling at the time um i really did believe um my business psychology training allowed me to understand what would be the right thing to say under the circumstances i mean i kind of weaponized psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that by, you know, these books seem to give me the skills to understand how to handle myself. And I, I really felt that I understood what people wanted to hear and how they wanted to hear it. And delivering the message in a genuine and respectful manner. Um, it was a covert operation. Mm-hmm. If it's an overt operation, people feel they were being motivated. They were being manipulated. Right. Now, I'll use an example of how you would do it. And I think I'm answering your question. So I make a decision to deliver an order on a direct drive to London. Okay. Um, The wrong way to handle it would be to say, once you delivered it, well, since I delivered this uh, all the way out here and I've eaten up... uh, I don't know, six hours of my day, I certainly expect you're giving me the next order. That's the wrong way. <laughs> yep. The, the empathetic the empathetic way would be, or the way to motivate or man, manipulate a distributor would be, of course I deliver it. You're a wonderful customer and we let you down. How could I go to sleep at night? There were no couriers available. And I felt the best thing to do was to get in here and get it to you because even the smallest order can damage a relationship that you have with your end user. Yes. So that's what they want to hear. People wanted not to be manipulated. They wanted to buy. They didn't want you to sell them. Mm-hmm. And it was exhausting because I always wanted or felt that I needed to provide a solution to somebody's problem. If I heard of a hardship, I always wanted to help if there was a, a death I wanted to let the distributors or firm know that I cared. It was an all-encompassing, emotionally draining job where I believed that 
that was my role at Demco. And um, yes, I do believe I was uh, empathic. Um, and I think that was my greatest skill. Yeah, I, I think that empaths have a tremendous ability to be able to see different perspectives and to be able to shift very quickly. And so when we talk, uh, when, we, when you use words like, you know, weaponizing or manipulation, I mean, you, from the outside looking in, one could say, okay, I see how that could be deemed manipulation or weaponization there. But really what you're doing is is you're being authentic. You're using a, an altered perspective and you are delivering news in the way that is going to actually be received properly. And it's genuine. Yes. It's it's yeah. real. So you can remove those words and it just came from the heart. But I think what you're saying here is that from, from a, a business psychology standpoint, that is the way to handle uh, your empathetic nature. And, and I, I give you a huge props for that. That's... That's that's massive. Um, I also described you as an introvert. I think it was the same blog, if I'm not uh, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I, I don't want to blow the whistle on you, Stan. So if you're uncomfortable answering this question, that's fine. But but uh, you you are an introvert, and and I would I would be one of the few people in the industry that would know that, uh, having spent so much time with you and working as closely as we did together. You you were not interested in in doing social events. These were things that didn't interest you, and yet you still had this ability to say, "I know what my and I won't say obligation. I know what my." my role is. I, I have a responsibility is the word I'm, I'm searching for. I have a responsibility. So Stan, if I got it right, and I think I did, and you are an introvert, how do you, in quotation marks, turn it on? How do you just turn on the extrovert? I mean, that is something that I think everyone would want to know because Hey, so many of us are introverts at heart, and I'm going to count myself as an introvert at heart, even though uh, you'll see me on stage and blah, 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 all these different things. But I, I think a lot of people find themselves in that same situation. H how did it work? How, how do you do it? Well, this is going to be very revealing, and I, I thought about if I wanted to share this, but I, I, why not? You know, growing up in the 1960s with chronic acne, uh, during my teenage years, those tender formative years where you learn social relationships, have a first love, you know, male bonding, learn social interactions, even table manners. I was left behind due to the emotional and physical scarring of my affliction. I had few friendships, no female encounters, and was largely uh, ignored by society, hid away. Uh, hid behind long hair, <clears throat> um, kept my head down, which probably is why I had such bad posture. Hmm. It was it was humiliating. I became very reclusive. It was my way of coping with a world that found people with chronic acne um, to be dirty. Uh, they didn't understand what it was. Uh, there were no cures. Um, I kept to myself uh, to avoid ridicule and embarrassment. And, you know, I had very few childhood friends. I have no positive memories of my childhood years. You know, you hear people tell stories about, uh, oh, I remember we went up to the cottage, the guys and I, I have none of those stories. Um, it was how I learned to cope 
in what I found to be a very cruel world mm. uh, because of the affliction. And I became an introvert because I largely had nobody to talk to. And um, if I was going to succeed in the business world, I would always default back to the way I had grown up, uh, which was, again, the, the introverted lifestyle. I role played. So you mentioned the idea of coaching. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a role play. I, am I capable of role playing the extroverted coach for one and a half hours? <clears throat> um, and if I thought I could, and I could pull it off, and I could do all the passions and give everyone a great experience, I would role play as an extrovert for an hour and a half. Um, I remember, you know, awards night where I would MC. I mean, judging by what I've just said, how could this guy stand up in front of the bright lights, which, you know, a guy like me with the experience I had was very uncomfortable in certain lighting, uh, stand on stage under the bright lights and because I decided that I could do that role for two hours, two and a half hours. And I remember I would hope that I would do it well. Um, I would shake hands on the way out. I'd be almost the first guy up the escalator mm. because the role was over. I was an actor and it was over. And I know that I often would go off stage and be the first person up that escalator I'd be back in my hotel room in 15 minutes. The tux would be on the ground. I'd be answering quotes and having a pizza. It was just, I had to learn to live with the affliction that so colored and, you know, the, the physical scarring is one thing, but the emotional scarring was enduring. And if I was going to have any sort of life, I had to find a way to conquer um, how I felt about myself. And um, that was that was the answer. It was strictly a role play. Was I capable? And you won't remember this, or you may, but even after we did a lot of hockey games, when there's a dressing room full of 15 or 16 people after one of the games, and I wasn't playing in my later years, I was uncomfortable of going into a dressing room full of 15 or 16 people. I would actually ask Serge or Josh to go in on my behalf. I was out of my comfort zone due to I had flashbacks to my earlier years. So it really defined me for pretty much my entire life. So my pity goes out to anybody who, who still has the affliction. However, you know, due to things like Accutane, uh, dermabrasion, uh, there are ways to control this. So, but they weren't there when I was uh, a teenager in my formative years. Well, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing that story. I, I had no idea that was the case, actually. And I, I will respond by being equally as vulnerable and saying that uh, I'm going to say a few things, actually. There's, the, you, there's so much to unpack in what you've just said here. Number one is that I, I had the same affliction that you had, Stan. I, I had terrible acne on my face, on my back, on my arms, and, and it was a source of utter utter embarrassment to me to the extent that I would travel every um, every summertime between university years 
And of course, my two best friends were supermodels, these guys, the best looking guys you've ever seen. And I was terrified to take my shirt off, just terrified. And the only thing that would help would be the sun. So I always went somewhere sunny, you know, Greece, uh, anywhere I could get to that that was hot and sunny. And two days, it would sort of clear it up enough that I I wouldn't be so embarrassed, but I'd still be embarrassed. If you got close up, I would be terrified. And one of the stories that 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 always resonates, and, and I still feel it is that I was a singer at a restaurant, a very prestigious restaurant in Vancouver, and everyone who worked there was an actor of some kind or a singer. Very, very talented people. And there was a regular that used to come in. He was a really nice guy, and uh, this restaurant was in a mansion. I would sing, and uh, he he would always be so kind and, and enjoy my singing as as the room would. And one morning on a weekend, he brought in his wife and his kids, his two young kids. I believe they were both little girls. And he introduced me to his wife and said, this guy, Alex, is a tremendous singer. He's going to sing for you today. And so I did. And after I finished singing and after he settled the bill, he came up to me and he gave me his business card and he said, he said, Alex, I, I'm so grateful. You are so talented. I can see all of the energy and all the potential in you. I'm a, I'm a movie producer. And, and I checked out this guy, his card. He was a big-time movie producer, not, not a small fry, a big-time movie producer. And he said, you call me, you're going in the movies. And I held on to that card for two years. I think I looked at it every single day for two years, and I never called and it's not that I regret it at this point because my life's been beautiful, but I understand what you went through. And it, it, it does turn one into an introvert uh, when you feel so helpless, when you feel so ashamed of your own body. So I don't know, I, 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 it would be great if there were young people listening to this because I think that's when we're most impressionable. Knowing what I know now, it would be a little bit different and I'm sure it would be for you too, but I thought I'd share that story with you and, and, and people that are listening because uh, that, that, that is really, that's really the nature of, of, um, of, of some of the issues that, that I still carry today emotionally. Um, and then one other comment I'll make with regard to what you just said is, is that I have found in my experience that some of the greatest salespeople I've ever worked with and ever witnessed are the greatest actors. They could have been Hollywood actors <clears throat> because that's what it takes and I'm not saying that from a phony perspective, not at all. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What you must do as a salesperson and what you must do as a successful person is you must be the successful person. You must be the unbelievable salesperson or whatever trade you are in, you must become it. And that means becoming an actor. That means putting on the role, putting on the, the, the disguise, the clothes, the tie, the blazer, walking into a room and absolutely owning it from the minute you are in there until the minute you leave it. And your story resonates when you are on stage hosting and it's not your thing, but you do it with charisma and charm. And everyone would think this guy, this guy's probably hosted the Oscars before. And yet you take off right afterwards because the role is finished. I understand that. I, I think a lot of people listening to this episode are going to understand that as well. So uh, that was a big one. Thank you for, thank you for, for, for bringing that up. Yeah. Just to bring some levity to this, on, on the face, it's acne. And as my mom said, on the back, it's back knee. <laughs> Yo, oh, I know too well. <laughs> I know too yeah. well. 
<laughs> you uh, on the lighter side of things, you you had an illustrious career at Deb at Debco. Um, can you share a couple of your most rewarding moments? Moments that just were just so great for you. Well, the hall in no particular order. The Hall of Fame induction, mm-hmm. um, so memorable. Um, I um, I don't know why I, I I picked a song by Daughtry. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. And it's on my, uh, my iTunes. And from time to time while driving in the car, I'll play the song and I'll have the shivers by the time it ends. I, I, I wish I hadn't lost the CD of my speech that night or the, the whole event. And I think at the time when I had the CD, um, I was going to do other things. I was going to have other accomplishments. I never realized that that your your career comes to an end, um, and, and it didn't really matter to me whether where I put it then because I was going to have more magical moments, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I never did, and uh, I wish I hadn't have lost the CD. Emceeing, um, as I mentioned before, Freddie Olson's awards night, um, truly memorable. Loved hosting. Um, Learned so much about the passion directed at Fred. Um, working with my son, Rob, mm. um, you know, he was hired, seeing my son every single day at work. He was hired under nepotism, um, but he grew to be a talent. And certainly when he started, I mean, he was doing this thing. I didn't even understand. He used to download emails. I was downloading emails. <laughs> but I was, I want to see if I do the phraseology right. When he was hired, uh, Rob was just my son. But as he started to make a name for himself, uh, I was just his father. Mm. And seeing Rob every single day and knowing that he is respected by the Hub 10X firm and um, that he's the only gallon still left in name at, at Debco. Um, he's truly my hero. And uh, I miss I miss seeing him every day. It's actually making me very teary-eyed. Mm. Um, and the final thing, the, the coming up with the idea of knowing that I had a lot of social limitations, um, that we ran the PPHL hockey game in lieu of the standard cocktail party, which I was never very comfortable doing, I got that the industry to go to an area of my strength was to run, uh, instead of the cocktail party, the cocktail party was held at a hockey rink where 100 players from across the country uh, played hockey. Um, Everybody got a couple of games and we donated uh, $10,000 uh, to the Canadian military. Um, that really was, uh, the most memorable event, uh, that I was uh, most memorable event that I was involved in. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Owen Griffith's name, who I may have had the idea, but he provided the execution and was a very behind the scenes guy who really didn't get the credit for, um, for helping me run that event. That was gigantic. Um, that was just a gigantic uh, thing for me. So those four uh, things would certainly come to mind. And I, and I just want to say how touching it is that one of your most memorable moments is the ability to have worked with your son. 
I uh, I will say that Rob Gallen is one of the most beautiful human beings that I know. And I say that in all sincerity. Uh, here's a guy who is so gentle, is so beautiful, is just such a uh, an always help everybody kind of guy. And uh, you don't you don't get that way uh, unless you have a role model. And I I just I I love that I I love that and I I, I I'm I'm getting emotional about it because I <clears throat> care for my kids so much and I can only hope that one day in some way, shape, or form, that that we will work together. Can you think of any of the bigger lessons that came your way during your career at Debco, Stan? Capitalism is ugly, hmm? is really what it boils down to. Um, self-interest. Self-interest dominates every single thing we do. Hmm. Um, and when you have self-interest and you have capitalism, um, business relationships are just what you said. They're not personal relationships, they're business relationships. And they're done within the umbrella of the desire to make money. Mm -hmm. And you can see the ugliness of humans as they attempt to make money. You know, um, it brings out the worst in people, particularly when people are not held accountable for the things that they say and do. I mean, you knew that if you were told a story by a distributor that you could never go and say, could I call your customer and find out if that's true? You had to work within the confines that capitalism allowed and that good customer service, you didn't question what a distributor said to you. Um, the U.S. invasion, again, um, brought out some of the, the worst to me. I mean, I got very emotional. I was the bad guy. People would say, you're the one who taught us how to sell bags. You were the guy we came to. And then when when the new the new boys, the new players came to town, a lot of people left me. And they, they were sad, but they wanted to make money. Uh, they wanted the Leeds product more than the Debco product. And it hurt. It really hurt. I wasn't mature enough to understand at the time um, self-interest and capitalism. I learned that. But what you what I learned younger was in the same goes with respect to staffing. You know, certainly we have the right to lay somebody off, but uh, a staff member has the right to lay themselves off if they see a better opportunity that came up. And I and I know that over the years, I mean, I saw a lot of people come and go over 35 years, less than I'd like to think many companies, because I think we turned a lot of, of um, staff members. Debco became a career and not a job. And I yeah. think that's what our goal was. But we had a lot of them that treated it as a job. And it hurt because I would look back and think you'd be jaded how many times I did this, I structured <clears throat> their job or the time that they came in to help them and then inevitably they left. I think self-interest and in the business environment, capitalism, were some of the biggest lessons, painful lessons that I learned. There wasn't always the loyalty that I gave. I didn't always get it back. I did in certain cases, but I kind of, maybe very immaturely, since I gave so passionately, I kind of expected that they would do same. 
that the answer is your expectations were unreasonable. So mm. I think you, that was the biggest lesson. You you once, uh, kind of jokingly, but I know it was serious, uh, told me that, that when someone says it's just business, it translates to someone's getting screwed, right? Well, and, and, isn't that unfortunate? Uh, it, well, don't take it personally, but... Yep. Yeah, he says it's just business, and, and, and that is the truth. It's, it's just an analogy for you're getting screwed. I do like you, but I got to make a living. But it's all done within the context of capitalism. People are making money and doing it any way that they can. And damn your, your relationship, I got to make a living. I got to, and I understand that. It's just, it was painful. People need to, to be able to pay bills, put money on the table, put their kids through college, pay alimony, <clears throat> whatever it may be. And whatever methods they needed to do so, they had to do. But sometimes you were, your relationship was the collateral damage yeah. as a result of cap the ugliness of capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's really interesting is that the irony that I left, you know, quote unquote, corporate to start a corporation, it doesn't isn't lost on me. There's no question about it. But do you find that there is a, a different spirit with a startup company there? There is a different energy and a naivete that that's really quite beautiful. And you were always a huge fan of new distributors. I mean, you went out of your way. You did things that no other supplier did. You welcomed them with these huge packages and you got them started. You sponsored them into the industry. Have you always favored the underdog and... And, uh, you know, is that, is that, is that, is there a place in your heart for startup businesses? Because it would re really appeared that way to me as we, as we journeyed together throughout our, our 20 years. I was the underdog. Mm -hmm. So of course I would relate to them. I was a guy who wasn't supposed to succeed. Mm. I had, whether it should have been or, or not, I should not have succeeded. I mean, I was socially um, developmentally challenged. I had these neuroses, these fears, these uncomfortabilities. So anybody that I found to be the under, had the underdog role, <clears throat> even if it's a sporting event where I'm watching two teams I could care less about, the team with the record that was less impressive would be the team that I would be pulling for. Hmm. With respect to a, a new startup or a distributor, my feeling was you don't know anything about this distributor. They haven't sent you their tax returns for the last couple of years. You've decided that they're small or new solely because this is their first touch point with you. Um, shame on us. Maybe we haven't turned them on before to buy from us. And on the other side, if you have a distributorship, you're, you're, you're making money because you got to make a living. <clears throat> I mean, this, you have to pay your bills, you have to pay your mortgage, your car payments. Mm -hmm. Even though we thought they were small, there's a possibility that they were actually making a healthy living and just not using you. <laughs> yep. So I wanted to be able to make that determination as time went along as opposed to determining off the fact, hey, we've been in business for 20 years. You're doing $2,000 a year. There's nothing here. <clears throat> you just may not have turned them on to buy from you. And 
I wanted to turn them. They could have just been a buyer. And I wanted to turn somebody that I didn't know who I perceived was just a small-time buyer into a client. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give them ample time in order to determine. I mean, if you got into business, all you needed to have was one relationship. If you knew the guy, say, at Molson's, and that was your buddy, and then somehow you got into the promotional products business, <clears throat> um, I always felt it was he could come, had the potential. They had unlimited potential. Right. I, mean, and I worked on the side that the potential was unlimited. It wasn't that they were small and useless. They could surprise me. And I would work with them in order to turn them into a client. They be, Yes, they were a pet project with uh, discount vouchers, samples to help them. I really tried to nurture them to determine if, in fact, they were small with everyone or just small with us. Mm. I adore the fact that you just said that you saw people as having unlimited potential. So yeah, right. You could have the Budweiser account or the Molson account. And all of a sudden that could mean six figures, seven figures uh, beyond that for sure. I, I see that every single day and I try and carry that philosophy into every single person I meet because we all have infinite potential. Every single human being on the planet has infinite intention, uh, potential. And, and I just, I'm so grateful to hear that. It's, it's, I think people really need to understand that. And when we do understand that, that gets rid of division because it, it starts to wipe out this notion of competition when we believe that everyone has unlimited potential. Our so-and-so competitors, uh, our, our customers, they, they're all capable and, and ourselves and ourselves included, we're capable of the infinite. And it means that in this billion dollar industry of which nobody has more than 2% uh, of the market, there's, there's nothing but business. You, you needn't really look at, at, at competition. It's just everyone has potential. So it's, it's really heartwarming to hear that perspective. As, as we move through this this presentation here, uh, this, this, this podcast, we're starting to get to the end here and we've done it chronologically. So as, as we get to the end of your career at Debco, was it tough to sell your business from an emotional standpoint, from an emotional perspective? As the junior partner, I was not uh, the driving force behind the decision to sell. Mm. Um, I was not involved in the initial process with the mergers and acquisition firm. Mm -hmm. And when I became aware that we were up for sale and had progressed that far down the line, there was no more time for emotion. I mean, I was just told that the company's being sold. And all I did was focus on putting my best foot forward to meet the desired end. Um, It wasn't, I I just did not want to be the guy that negatively affected the outcome, but I never had a chance to get emotionally involved because I wasn't involved in the decision-making. Though you, though you didn't have a chance to be emotionally involved in the decision, was it an emotional situation for you not being included in that, in that conversation? Clearly. Yeah. Let's leave it at that. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Stan. How about, um, what's it like right now to be out of an industry that you were in for so long? Like what, what does life look like right now? What does it feel like? Uh, You know, I, 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 I 
can't imagine, though I can imagine, having left uh, my role, I still do work in the industry, but what does it feel like? Well, had you had we done this in 2019, um, the answer would be dramatically different. But I mean, I've been gone for three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, playing hockey. I always refer to hockey, but it's actually true. Uh, my last actual day in a Debco uh, facility uh, was Saturday, December the 22nd, 2018. And I, I've never been back. Um on the, the next day, the 23rd, I played hockey in my league. And I remember just, I don't even remember the score. I don't remember anything about it. I just remembered I didn't have a job to go back to uh, starting in the new year. And I felt extraordinarily hollow. And one of the gentlemen in the dressing room could see that I was really not focused. And he said, like, what, what's up? And I told him, you know, that what had happened. And he said to me, um, I've been through that. And eventually you're going to find things that will fill your day so much so that you will say that I don't have time to work any longer. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, but you don't understand. You know, that's all I really did was Debco. I mean, I had no real other life. I'm not going to adjust like you. I'm not normal. <clears throat> he was right. Um, I don't miss it. I've been gone for just too long. And I recognized uh, a chief relationship officer is not a good fit for a private equity firm that needs quantifiable data as to the legitimacy of somebody's job. It's very hard to quantify goodwill. I mean, you know, it's there. Yep. And I've been praised for that there was a goodwill quotient in the sale of the firm, but it, it it's a tough sell. And I would not have been, in retrospect, a good fit for the Hub 10X group. I was a relationship lone wolf. I, I looked at the business world completely differently than most rational people would. And, and I came to these conclusions because, you know, at any one time, if you looked up the word bags in the old promotional products roster, there could have been 125 names of people who said that they sold a bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what type of bag, but a bag. Uh, drinkware was in the 70s. Umbrellas, of course, there, there weren't that many. But uh, And tech products, I, I never looked. But um, I felt that I would best be served using the, you know, the goodwill aspects, the, the psychological aspects. But that was not something that... Uh, that private equity firms place great value on. And I don't blame them. They're, they're bottom line. They're, they're numbers oriented. I got out at the exact right time. So no, I have no regrets. Um, you know, I'll share something personal with you that is also business wise. Um, I, I think a, you sell yourself short. I, I, I think that there is a place for relationships and, and a chief relationship officer. Uh, and I, I think that, uh, some private equity companies do understand and realize that I have carried some guilt um, wh- after you left because it, it was apparent to me that that you know your departure um, had something to do with them wanting me to be the the face of the company and, and allow me room, thinking that 
uh, Alex must think Stan's going to usurp him. And, and I, 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 I don't, I, I knew that was never the case, but I, I, I felt it. And I, I know you and I had talked about that and that was something that came up in conversation, but I, I feel that way. I, I feel somewhat causal uh, at, at times. And um, I, I just want you to know that it, it certainly, you. Um, you know, it was not my decision, but, uh, but it is uh, just something that, uh, that I think about uh, every now and again. Anything in the industry, Stan, that you miss? Uh, clearly the direct staff that I worked with, uh, you know, I go to bed some nights and I pretend that I'm still in the room looking out of my office and I try to reconfigure where everybody sat and what their names were. Uh, we, somebody said to me, they were the golden years of Debco hmm. and, um, to me, they were the golden years and the shout outs. You know, I don't think I've said some of these names in years. Patricia Ortiz, Lorraine Walsh, Lorna Sharkey, Cindy Purit, Seema Verk, Shannon Plunkett, the incredible Lori Gibbs, who sent me a, uh, an email uh, about a month ago that was so touching. And she said that they still sometimes quote things that I said and did. And... Um, I wrote her back a note, and it was true. She made me teary-eyed. Virginie Nove, who I truly, I don't know how, I never really said goodbye to. Uh, Cologne Savageo and Karen Rosenfeld and Marie Kirschenbaum. We did some really, really great things together. And despite the fact I've never really seen any of you again, you are near and dear to me. And uh, I hope you had a tremendous impact on my life and uh, I hope I had the same on yours. And the second thing would be the thousands of distributors across Canada who welcomed me into their offices or their homes or asked me to dinner or asked me to sleep at their places, which of course I never did either of them for reasons that I talked about earlier, my uncomfortability, but I really miss the relationships that I had and how abruptly they ended. Um, I think about a lot of them and um, every time I hear that one of them has passed on, I feel a void and I think about them. Um, yeah, that was, I find it very sad, that part. That's touching. Did you, did you know on your last tour of, uh, of the country that it would be your last tour? Did you, did you ever get a chance to, to formally say goodbye? Well, <clears throat> I wish that I had of, I mean, when I, um, when the company was sold, I made a commitment to go to every single province in the country and spread the wealth that this was a good decision for Debco, why it was. And from the period of July the 1st to December of, of that same year, I can say that <clears throat> I went to every single province and spoke to hundreds and hundreds of distributors selling the value of the you know Hub 10X purchase. Um, I wish that I knew that the cross country tour was a farewell tour, but I didn't Mm -hmm. because um, I would have been able to bring closure to a career that never was closed. Um, I remember 
uh, Terry and Sue from Impact Marketing in Saskatoon said to me, you're never coming back. And I said, of course I am. Of course I'm coming back. And they started to cry. And then I got teary eyed and they gave me a hug. And it was almost prophetic that they knew I wasn't coming back, but I really believed that I was. And I guess had that, had I known that it was a truly a farewell tour, it would have been pretty emotional all over the country. So perhaps maybe it was best that it played out the way it did, but I wish I had a known because there were a lot of people I really, really wanted to say goodbye to. I never will have that chance. So to me, my career was unfinished business. And that's just how it has to be. I I initially had this idea to write the blog series because I knew that everything you had taught me and everything I had absorbed uh, would be of value to people in our industry and even outside of our industry. And then it dawned on me and occurred to me that this podcast would be a beautiful follow-up to that, to be able to really understand the energy and feel it and feel the heart. And I think that we've accomplished that in this podcast, but it never occurred to me until now, and maybe it hasn't to you either, that this may be the moment for you to be able to, to be able to put some closure on, on your career. Have you got any final words that you'd like to say to the people you loved so much, the friendships you had, the just all of all of the people, all of the people, everybody, everybody, suppliers, distributors, employees, people that you talk to in kiosks at the airport. Are there any words that you'd like to say to to put a beautiful period in the shape of a heart at the end well, of this beautiful career? I think, I think sometimes I thought if someone said to me, how would you like to be remembered? Mm -hmm. I, and I would say caring, empathetic, and genuine, and that the guy was an honest guy uh, who always did what he said he would do and did it with passion and really wanted you to succeed as much as he wanted to. I mean, I was just a common man. I had alimony to pay and still do. I had young kids. Um, I drove a, a common car, you know, a Hyundai Santa Fe or, you know, I was just trying to make a living and you helped bring orders to the firm, which gave life to at the end, 300 employees every day was just wide eyed and bushy tailed. Um, I was thrilled, appreciative. It never changed. Um, and I, you made my life. I mean, the relationships that I made all over, over the country, um, I wasn't much into going out for dinners, but when we got to sit down with people and speak to them for several hours and just brainstorm about their lives, how hard it is to make a living, the challenges, um, you know, that, 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 that the four imprints of the world, we really bonded. And um, I just want to tell everyone how meaningful and genuine and how thrilled I was when people opened the door and when I can say I know where Baker Brook is, I, uh, I I know where I've been in Medicine Hat and Thunder Bay and um, every little town, Moose Jaw. Uh, I went up as, as far as, as Prince George. I want to thank everybody for opening the door and letting me in. 
Um, I was richer for it. You have no idea how excited I was when I could close my eyes and see the front of a building and remember their letterhead and see the same font style on the front of their building that was on their letterhead. It was magical. And um, the staff and the, the beautiful memories and how we synergistically did some tremendous things together. And you, Al, and your incredible running mate, Dan Baker, um, a humble guy. But as you said to me many years ago, do you ever play this game? Of who's the smartest guy you know? I'm like, of course I don't play that. I mean, I'm so busy trying to find out American Football League stats or baseball averages. And you said, well, well, I play that game, and the smartest guy I know is Daniel Baker. And I said, well, if I had to pick the smartest guy I know, it's you. And synergistically, the three of us did some absolutely magical things together. So. Thanks to everyone who's listening. You you made my life. I had a few more questions for you, and I, I'm, I'm not going to ask those questions. Um, I, I just think that this is such a beautiful and, and, and fitting end to this podcast. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have one more for you. But I'm going to make a statement, and I'm going to be bold and speak on behalf of all Canadians in the promotional products industry. And I'm going to say thank you. I'm going to say thank you for being you for building a company that um, had integrity, has integrity, uh, ha- continues to, to, to be that way with your DNA all over it. Um, thank you for being a leader and a mentor to me personally and to so many people in this industry. I, I just know that there are countless people across the country who feel the same way that I do. And I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of all of them today when I, when I say thank you. And uh, to my American friends, whom I've got to know very well over the last few years, I'm beyond excited and happy that you get a chance to be able to understand why I am the way I am in business and why this company that you have done business with for so many years um, is the way that it is and functions the way that it does today and was integrated so beautifully into the HPG landscape. Um, thank you. Thank you, Stan. Um, got anything next? Any big plans? Well, at 60, 65.7 years old, uh, <laughs> no more big. But, you know, since retirement, I've learned how to play golf. And when you add uh, a pinch of winter rules, year-round, to <laughs> breakfast balls, to mulligans, to gimme putts, um, to a Trump way of playing golf, uh, I can legitimately, <laughs> illegitimately, legitimately break 90, break, or be in the 90s, break 100. Um, you know, 40% of my time is in the Azores, uh, in our condo. Um, I got eight granddaughters and one grandson. Uh, my mom's almost 90 and she's still driving a car. I mean, today we started this interview at one o'clock because I had to put snow tires on a 90 year old woman's car. <laughs> Unreal. Is it fulfilling? Let's just say you take it day by day. Some days I feel I still bring value and that I have value. And some days I don't, but it's a day by day challenge. But uh, I do commiserate with the poor suppliers and distributors 
whose lives have been altered so greatly and their retirement plans and their wealth due to COVID. I mean, my timing of getting out, we'll say, um, it wasn't planned. It was just good fortune. And I know that a lot of people were left behind. A lot of people my age may never be able to get out uh, and sell their businesses and be able to retire. And my heart does go out to the many of them who are my age group, who I grew up with, and uh, their lives have been so severely affected, not only health-wise, which we all have, and lost a lot of loved ones, but they lost their ability to comfortably and possibly leave this industry. And I do find that very sad. So mm-hmm. I know I'm very, I'm not a religious guy, but I do use the term that I was blessed. And I think about it every single day, how fortunate I am. And I try to be as benevolent as I can now because of the good fortune that was bestowed upon me for really no good reason. I mean, it didn't have to happen. It, it, had we not sold in 2018, um, I don't know what would happen to me right now. So I just thought I would add that as a final note. Mm, that's beautiful. And, and I would say there, there's a lot of reasons behind your success and, and the way that things turned out. And I'm going to actually challenge you in one regard, Stan. And I'm going to say that you've got a lot left to give at seven, 67.5. Is that what you just said? 67.5 <laughs> years Okay. 67.7. Okay. All right. Who's who's splitting hairs here? Um, Look, you've got just as much heart, just as much energy, just as much beauty as, as you've ever had. And you are probably continuing to change the world now without even knowing it. So keep on being you. Keep on letting that energy flow because it's important to humanity. And I'm just so grateful that, uh, that, that you were there for me for all those years. Continue to be there for me as a friend. And uh, just thank you, Stan. And again, on behalf of everybody, thank you. Uh, I, I wish you an awesome rest of the year, 2021. And here's to a beautiful 2022. Thank you again for your time. You. All right. Bye, Stan. Bye-bye. That is a wrap and that concludes part two of the stan gallon mentor series interview i hope you loved it as much as i did hey thank you so much stan for being so gracious and for allowing me to interview you and most importantly i would like to thank you the listeners because without you stan doesn't have that kind of experience And without you, I only have a camera and a microphone that I'm standing in front of with nobody to talk to. We are part of the same team. We rely on one another. We need each other. So thank you. Hey, listen, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the like button. Subscribe to the channel. Do all those fun things because in January, I am launching some new educational content that nobody knows anything about yet. It is revolutionary and I am so excited about it. Check out our website, www.promonoise.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Check out the blogs, the content, all kinds of resources. And hey, Let's keep making beautiful noise together. I'll see you again soon. Take care.